0: It's great to be back with you this evening. It really is. We had a good time today and a good morning. So hopefully you guys had a good day as well, and and hopefully you're here uh, ready to hear from the Lord. We're going to trust that He's going to speak to us tonight. I was reminded um, a little earlier this evening that I, I guess yesterday morning at some point in the service, I'm I'm like made mention of a like a football game last night, no, uh, like a maybe like a big city this relatively nearby. Maybe I made mention of that. So I just want you to not apologize for that. And due to the sacredness of what's going on here, you know what? We're just not going to talk about football. We're just not talking about football anymore. You know, we're just going to talk about the things of the Lord. So just want you guys to know that. Um, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into uh, what we have in front of us tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we do love you. And, and uh, man, we just... Thank you for faithful servants and got to hear from Matt and Juliana. And we, and we are thankful for them. And, and Lord, just as Jeff was praying, uh, uh, Lord, that your hand of protection will be on them. And you'll continue to, to just lead and guide every step of the way there. And, and we pray that their uh, ministry is fruitful and and glorifying to you lord we pray that uh, everything that is said and done tonight will be the same it'll be fruitful in our lives it'll be fruitful uh in in the work of the ministry and lord it'll be glorifying to you and and it'll it'll lift you up and and lord that's what we're going to look at tonight and so that's what we're going to try to do so lord we love you we thank you we ask all this in jesus name amen So, yesterday morning we kicked off this missions conference and and used 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first five verses there, to begin to lay out this theme of your mission behind the mission. And we saw that our mission in preparation for everything God wants to do through us includes having the right mind, the right manner, and the right message. And listen, if we're going to do what, what Jeff was saying and truly reach across the world, we are going to have to stretch. And having the right mind and having the right manner and even having the right message, that is going to stretch us. But it's work that we got to put in because it's work God deserves. And so starting tonight and, and going through the rest of the week, through Wednesday night, we're going to break down each one of those three keys to preparation starting tonight with the right mind. And if you were here yesterday morning, you know that we defined the right mind as a humble mind, a a crucified mind. We know from Philippians chapter 2 that this was the mind Jesus had as he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So the right mind is one willing to die Willing to crucify the flesh, willing to do anything that the Father's will demands. And why is that? Why is it that this is the right mind to be willing to die to our flesh, to be willing to do anything that God demands of us? It is simply because He is worthy. He is worthy. And, and that's what I want to try to get across to you tonight. And, and, I, and man, I, I hope you're praying with me because I know, I, I know what I want to get across and I know what I, what I want to say. I don't know exactly how to say it. As, as simple as this topic is, it's a hard one to discuss. And so I hope you're praying. But he is worthy. And we should pull our weight in the mission simply because he is worthy. Because he is God. You see, sometimes when we go about, you know, when when we look at what God wants to do and we we consider going to Morocco or we consider going to our next door neighbor or whatever the case may be, you know, we we run through all these thoughts in our mind and we run through everything and we, we, you know, count the cost and we try to figure out, all right, man, okay, how am I going to do this and what am I going to do? And we ask this question and we say, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it really worth it to put my life out there for God? When really that is the wrong question to be asking. The question is not, is it worth it? The question is, is He worth it? Is He worthy? That is the question you have to determine in your mind. If you're ever going to fulfill the mission of God and you want to put on the right mind for the mission, you have to determine in yourself if he is worthy or not. And this is his mission. As as Matt was saying, he's bigger than it. So it's his mission, and he's called us to be a part of it. We're called to go and teach and preach. So since he's called us into it, that's what we should do. But if you're ever going to do it the way God wants it done, you have to have the right mind about it. And that starts with recognizing who he is, almighty God. And you say, Troy, this is, okay, this is simple. Uh, Yeah, I get it. He's God. I believe it. We got to talk about this tonight and see if we really do. Because our thesis for tonight's study is this, you will be a humble servant with the right mind only if you fully understand the worthiness of your master. And listen, I know this is a missions conference, but we've got to take just a couple steps back tonight and try to get a handle of who God is. Because if we get that right and we get our minds right there, then serving him in the mission will happen naturally. So tonight I'm going to try to paint a picture for you, a picture about the greatness of God. And in his sermon titled Fear Not, delivered on October 4th, 1857, at the Music Hall at Royal Surrey Gardens, Charles Spurgeon made this observation. He said, Let your mind rove upon the great doctrines of the Godhead. Consider the existence of God from before the foundations of the world. Behold him who is and was and is to come, the Almighty Let your soul comprehend as much of it, as much as it can, of the infinite, and grasp as much as possible of the eternal. And I am sure if you have minds at all, they will shrink with awe. And listen, how do you describe the indescribable? I don't know. I can't do it. I mean, you know, Spurgeon does a pretty good job here. I don't know how. But, but here is what I do know. He has got to be indescribable to you. If you're all ever going to give your life to him in the mission, you have to have that view of God. And if you're going to stretch yourself for his cause, you've got to believe that he's all that he says he is. That's what I want to try to show you this evening. And we're going to base tonight's study out of the 86th Psalm. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn there with me, Psalms chapter 86. And the 86th Psalm is titled, A Prayer of David. And, and while many of the Psalms were, were sang as prayers, this is one of the five songs titled as prayers, or as they're called. And so this was a special prayer of David and a prayer that I'm sure he enc- encouraged others to take the Lord to also. And with that in mind, I want to encourage you tonight to make it your prayer as well. As you contemplate what your part is in God's mission, I want you to use this as your prayer. And I want you to put yourself and then see yourself in David's shoes. And specifically, I want you to see and understand and grasp David's description of the worthiness of God. Because David has the right mind for the mission. And that's that's where we need to end tonight with. So the question I have for you as we start is this. How much is he worth to you? I mean, that's what we were just singing about. He is worth it all. But you have to ask yourself. It's one thing to sing that song, but it's another thing to believe that in your heart. How much is he worth to you? How worthy do you see him? And I don't want you to be quick to jump to an answer on that quite yet and say that he is worth it all if you're not willing to give him all. So are you all in with the mission of God? And if not, I just want you to ruminate on that question a little bit. I want you to ponder that. How much is he worth to you? And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's kind of a weird question. I mean, what do you mean how much is he worth to me? Like like I could place a price on Jesus. Like I could place place a price on God. And to that, I would just say he placed a price on you. So what are you willing to give him back in the mission? Because whether you recognize it or not, we place value on everything. And the value that we place on something is shown by how much of our time, how much of our money, how much of our resources, our energy that we give to it. So let me ask it this way. How valuable is worship to you? Because when we talk about the worthiness of God and how much he is worth, we're talking about worship, which just means to attribute worth. And I say that because worship is about value. So our worship of God demonstrates the value that we, are, that we place on God. So the frequency of our worship, the passion of our worship, the nature of our worship declares the value that we place on, upon the Lord. So if our worship is infrequent and inconsistent, and if our worship is cold and complacent, if our worship is fruitless and faithless, then the value that we place upon God is too low. Now, did you hear the, the, the story about the, the 911 call at the church? Right? The caller on the line reported someone was not breathing at the church, and the EMTs responded, and they brought out four people before, before they found the right one. And I know that's a... Terrible. I'm not a funny guy. I'm not, that, that's, so I apologize for that feeble attempt at humor. But does that describe the condition of your worship? Does that describe your relationship with God? Because if worship is genuine, it is alive, it is vibrant, it is moving, it is involved in the mission, it's seeking out where God wants you to be. And it's all determined by the worth that we place upon God. Our view of God. How do you view God? And when David prays this prayer in the psalm, David wants God to know that he is truly worthy. He is worth it all. And he's worthy of everything, and he's worthy to be praised. And David wants God to know that he places great value on the relationship he has with him. And because of that, it drives him to then want to serve him. And the same thing will happen to us. If we place a low value on God, then our service is going to be suspect. If our worship isn't isn't vibrant, it it, it isn't wanting to please God. If we don't have the right mind, then we won't get the right result. And so we need to not take God for granted. We we need to not uh, take him for our own selfish purposes. We need to recognize and verbalize what we have in God. And then we should give him our life because of it you know whether we know it or not there is a fight going on for our life there's a fight going on for your life but there is a fight going on for my life and it is for our worship i mean this started with lucifer and, and, and go back to the we're not going to take the time to go there but back to the book of isaiah and the original fall of of, of the angels and this was a fight about worship. And then in the, in the Garden of Eden, with the serpent and Eve, it was a fight about worship. And, and, and then in, in the wilderness, as Jesus, in, in Matthew chapter 4, as Satan comes to him and tempts him, it was a fight about worship. And today, as we stand here in 2016, There is still a fight going on for worship. Who are you going to worship with your life? What are you going to ascribe the most value to in life? Is it his mission or is it your own? And that's, again, where we find David at in this text. So when David pens this psalm, he's crying out for God to hear him and to hear his expression of what he feels about God. And what he thinks about God. Look with me in Psalm chapter 86 starting in verse 1. He says, bow down thine ear, O Lord. Hear me, for I am poor and needy. Okay, now this is a great place to start. So here in verse 1, David asked God to bow down his ear. And David asked that because he is bowed down. He is in a lowly position, a humble position of a servant. And he calls himself poor and needy. And listen, it is good for us to recognize that we are poor and needy. And I know that statement is not popular in today's world, even in the church world. That certainly flies in the face of most of today's counseling, including Christian counseling. It is a pro-self world that we live in that states and believes in the sufficiency of man. And all of that counseling and our our world system says that you are good and you are strong and you are capable of finding your own way. But but none of that is true outside of God. If you are a Christian, you are good and you are strong and you are all that other stuff, but it, it is only because you are in Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees Christ. And so your standing with god is that of holiness because as you are placed in christ he sees christ when he looks at you and listen i know what they taught you in sunday school that god made you and god doesn't make junk but god made mosquitoes too and i don't know why he did that so it's okay to embrace the fact that you are poor and needy like david because that is a biblical position Listen to how Paul describes himself. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 9 he says, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In Ephesians 3:8, he says, Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul considered himself poor and needy. And you know what? So should we and here's why. Because it is exactly the opposite of how God describes the Laodicean church. And I suspect many of you in here know your church history and know that the Laodicean church in Revelation chapter 3 represents our age, the church of our age, and our culture. And and instead of poor, Revelation 3.17 says the Laodicean church says, we are rich. And instead of needy, we say we are increased with goods and have need of nothing. It is directly opposite. And it's because the Laodicean church thinks that it doesn't need God. And listen, if you think you have something good in you other than God, then you will think the same thing. Why do I need him? And that is our culture. And, man, I hope you hear what I'm saying in all this. David said he was poor and needy. And a poor and needy person needs someone to come to the rescue. And when they get that rescue, they owe their life to the rescuer. But our problem is that too many of us do not recognize that we're poor and needy. So the result is, we end up living life for ourselves, only looking to please ourselves. And then our life isn't about the mission of God, it's about the mission of self. And let me tell you, those missions could not be more polar opposite. And and we'll see that here in a second in Psalm 86. So if we end up giving our life to what Psalms 86 calls other gods, and we'll talk about that in a second, that we think will bring us joy or pleasure or happiness, then we are not so concerned about bringing God glory. So what that means is we are worshiping ourselves, and maybe we don't even know it. And I know that sounds crazy. I, I know you're saying, hold on a second. Maybe I'm not worshiping God like I should. Okay, I get that. I, I'm going to work on that. I'm not worshiping God like I should. But, but I don't worship myself. But, but is that really the truth? Because at the very least, you care more about you than him. And if it's not you that you care about, it's something. Listen, what the Bible tells us, is that you will give your life to something. Remember what Joshua said to the nation of Israel near the end of his life? I mean, Many of us have this in our homes somewhere. In, in Joshua 24, he gathers the people of Israel together for what you know, must have been a farewell type of address. And he's, he's giving them what he feels is most important. And he gets to verse 14 in Joshua chapter 24 and says, Now therefore fear the Lord, And serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua lays it out very clearly for them, but what I want you to see is the underlying assumption in Joshua's statement, which is, you will make a choice. Joshua doesn't go through a list and say, okay, you can serve you know, the other gods that your father served, or you, know, you can serve the one true God, or you can just serve nothing. He doesn't say that. The assumption is, you are going to serve something, so make it God. And like I said a few minutes ago, this is exactly where David is at in this psalm. David moves down in this prayer and says there are different gods fighting for our life, fighting for our worship. And David wants God to know that he's placing his greatest value on him. He wants to be involved in God's mission and not his own. So look back in Psalm 86 and jump all the way down to verse 8. i want to jump all the way down to verse 8. So he's kind of working his way through this. And in Psalm 86, verse 8, he says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. So David says, there are gods out there, but but there's none like you. And now you have to know that as it relates to us, as we've been talking about so far this evening, a god is anything that seeks your worship. It's anything that seeks your life. It's anything that tries to steal you away from the mission. And there's a fight going on for that, for your worship. There is a spiritual fight for your life going on as we speak. Whose mission are you going to be a part of? And I know that that skimmed right past some of you, but that statement should make you pause. And that should be a sobering thing to think about. There's a fight for you. And listen to me now, because many of the struggles you deal with in life are just issues of worship. What God, so to speak, are you going to worship today? There are no shortage of gods to to steal you away from the one true God. And it's different for each person. Uh, It could be money, it could be a job, it could be sports, respect, your family. And and I say family because it could even be a worthy cause. I mean, there's everything good about serving and, and giving your life to your family. The problem is, at the instant anything, including your family, takes the place of the Lord God in your life. The moment it becomes an end in itself, then it becomes a God. When something or someone replaces the Lord God in position of glory in our lives, then that person or thing by definition has become our god. We were created according to 1 Peter 2:9 and Isaiah 43 plenty of verses. We were created to give glory, to give praise 1 Peter 2.9, he says, the, the, he, we are a, a peculiar nation. And I understand the doctrinal application of 1 Peter chapter 2 and who that's to, but, but for us, inspirationally, he's, he said we were we were created to praise him. To give our praise, to give glory to the one true God. That's what we were created for. We, we saw this morning, or yesterday morning in Colossians 1:16, we were created what? By Him and for Him. It is not. Not, We weren't just created for ourselves and to live our lives in ourselves. So whoever gets your worship is your God. So David is trying to teach you that there is only one God that is worthy. There may be multiple gods fighting for your time, your attention, your resources, and your energy. But there's really only one who deserves it. So give your worship to him. Give your life to him. Figure out your spot in the mission, just what he's asking you to do. He's not asking you to, to, to maybe he is, but for most of you, he's not asking you to, to sell your house and go give your money to, to whoever or whatever. But you've got to find out what he's asking you to do, and then you've got to do it. And that brings us to the main verse that we're going to look at tonight, which is Verse 10. And in, in Psalm eighty-six, ten, David gives us three very distinct reasons why the true God is worthy, and what exactly He is worthy of. So look there, verse ten. He says, "For Thou art great, and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone." And th- I'll just tell you, this is one of uh, this verse is on my wall in my office. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because we see in this verse three very succinct and direct points about God. First, he said he was great. Second, he says he does wondrous things. And third, he's God alone. And these three points describe in in a great way his worthiness to us. So what exactly God is worthy of. And first of all, God is worthy of your worship. This is what we've been talking about this whole time already. But what we haven't really got to yet is why. And the answer to why is because he is great. We have a great, great God. We have the greatest God. And I want you to think about him for a second. Just how great is our God? And the Hebrew word translated great here in Psalm 8610 is defined as high, loud, mighty, more, much, excellent, and he is all that, and that is still not even enough. Like I said, when we started tonight, how do you describe the greatness of God? I'm I'm not sure you can, but let let me give you a few ways the Bible describes his greatness. The Bible says he is a dwelling place, or a refuge, a pure spirit, a righteous judge, all-knowing, all-powerful, avenging, compassionate, and yet a consuming fire, creator, deliverer, eternal, Everywhere and always, faithful, forgiving, gracious, impartial, incomprehensible, infinite, light, long-suffering, love, maker of all things, merciful, mighty, most absolute, most holy, most wise, my stronghold, he's near, our helper and our salvation, perfect and perfectly righteous, shepherd, sustainer of the soul, he is true, the truth, he is three in one, he is unchangeable, because he doesn't have to change. And he's unequaled. And that is not all. And it's a begin. That's the tip of the iceberg. He is more than that. He is much more than that. So who else would you want to serve? Why do you give your life to something inferior and temporary? If nothing else, you need to leave this place tonight seeing how big your God is. And I see that because I say that because that is a problem in Christianity today. We don't see God the way He is, and we see Him with human eyes. And so we place Him on a human level, and we think—and we wouldn't ever admit this—but we, because of the the, the frailty and the infallibility—or or, or the, or the, excuse me, the fallibility—that we see in ourselves, in others, and in our Father, we put those same limitations on God. And it's not true. Let me give you another A.W. Tozer, Tozer quote. If, if you haven't figured it out yet, I kind of like him. Um, I, I kind of I like reading his stuff. But anyway, he once said, The God of the evangelical, the average evangelical church is too small. He's not the God of heaven and the God of creation, but he's a homemade, handmade God you can pull down. He's a stuffed shirt. He's a Santa Claus. He's just an old uncle that we want to keep on his good side so when the time comes, he can make us rich. 1 Chronicles 29, 11 addresses the true Jehovah. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord. Thou art exalted as head above all. You see, God is great, and he's greatly to be praised. And if you haven't tried him, you need to try him. Psalm 34, 8 says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. You've got to try him out. You've got to taste him because he is worthy of that. He's worthy of your worship because he is great. But listen, not only is he great, he's also good. And there's a difference. Psalm 119 verse 68 says, thou art good and doest good. You see, the greatness of God describes his largeness, his excellence, His mighty stature. The goodness of God describes his nature. So not only is he big, he's kind. Not only is he mighty, he's merciful. Not only is he powerful, he's gracious. Not only is he great, he is good. But let me ask you, do you really believe that? Do you believe that he's good even when bad things happen? Do you believe it when life isn't turning out the way you had imagined or planned? And this is key. I promise you, you need to get this. Because if you want to give your life to the mission of God and not something else, you have to be able to understand how great God is. But you will miss his greatness if you can't see his goodness. And if you don't understand or believe that God is really good to you, then why would you even care that he was great? So you need to decide what the Bible says about God's goodness, even when you don't think you can see it. And how do you do that? You trust. You trust in what the Word of God says. And you just decide to believe it. And you put your faith in that and nothing else. Corey Ten Boom provided some clarification on this issue when she wrote these works. She said, often I have heard people say how good God is. We prayed that it would not rain for our church picnic and look at the lovely weather. Yes, God is good when he sends good weather, but God was also good when he allowed my sister Betsy to starve to death before my eyes in a German concentration camp. I remember one occasion when I was very discouraged there. Everything around us was dark. There was darkness in my heart. I remember telling Betsy that I thought God had forgotten us. No, Corey, said Betsy, he has not forgotten us. Remember his word. For as the heavens are high above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And she went on to say, there is an ocean of God's love available. There is plenty for everyone. May God grant you never to doubt that victorious love, whatever the circumstances. So how was Corey Tinboom Boom able to move past the tragedies of her life? It's because she had tro- chosen to worship the true God no matter what. She remembered his word, and she put her faith in that. Even if she didn't understand, she was going to trust. A little over two years ago, my daughter Kate, so she's seven now, so she was actually four uh, when this happened, but she just turned seven. She had a cyst in her neck, and, and so they had to remove it. So it had a cyst removed, and it was, it was a relatively simple procedure, but it was surgery. So it's not the most comfortable feeling sending your four-year-old daughter off to be operated on and we got to stay with her all the way up until the point that she had to go to the operating room but when that moment came I mean it just broke my heart I mean because she was scared and she didn't want to go and she's reaching out to me and she wasn't really saying anything but you know what in that moment I didn't want to let her go I wanted to grab her and say you know what let's go back home but we knew we couldn't, so we tried to talk to her and to calm her down and to make her feel better, but she didn't understand. Like I said, I'll never forget that moment when they took her away and she was looking at me and Jennifer, my wife, like, why are you letting them do this to me? Why are you letting them take me away? And you know why we did it? You do. Do you know why we let them take her away, put her under and operate on her? It was because it was good. Was it painful? Yeah. But it was good. Could Kate understand it? She couldn't. She couldn't understand it. She was too young. She was too inexperienced. But Jennifer and I understood it. It was best for her. It was what she needed. The risk of not removing it far outweighed the risk of removing it. So there was temporary pain. But that temporary pain was necessary to produce long-term health. And I'm here to tell you tonight that God is good all the time so recognize his goodness so that you can then see his greatness because when you see his greatness and when that light bulb goes off and you truly see him for who he is the best you can in your human brain and you'll want to give him your life you'll want to join the mission so God is worthy of your worship because he is great And he is good. But then second, David also describes how God is worthy of your wonder. And God is worthy of your wonder because he does wondrous things. And isn't that true? Think about it. Think about how he works in your life. And this position of wonder, that should be a constant position for every Christian. A a position of wonder, a position of awe. And if we did this like we should, it could just be the thing that in some way motivates everything we do and say. Wonder of God should be the reason we do what we do with our thoughts. It should be the reason we desire what we desire. Wonder and fear of God should be the reason we treat our spouse the way we do and parent our children in the manner we do. Wonder of God should be the reason we function the way we do at our job or the way we handle our finances. It should structure the way we think about physical possessions and personal position and power. Wonder of God should give to the re- direction we live as a citizen in the wider community. It should form the way that we think about ourselves and expectations of others. Wonder of God should lift us out of the darkest moments of discouragement and be the source for our most exciting celebrations. Like Psalm 4.4 says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. So wonder of God should make us more self-aware and more mournful of our sin. While it makes us more patient and tender toward the weakness of others. Our wonder of God should rule every domain of our existence. And I say that, and I went through all of that. Because when wonder of God is absent, it is quickly replaced by wonder of self. Because if you are not living for God, the only alternative is you are living for yourself. And at that point, the true God is losing the battle for your life, the battle for your worship. Like I said, your worship is going to go somewhere. And if God isn't getting it, then you are not living your life the way it was designed to be lived. And now, don't get it mad at me, but the truth of the matter is, our closeness to God has nothing to do with God. That's about, it's on us. So let me, let me say that another way. You are, at this moment, as we sit here tonight, you are at this moment as close to God as you choose to be. And that is just a true statement. And as a sobering statement, if we'll take it to heart, you are at this very moment as close to God as you choose to be. He is not pushing you away from him. He is wanting you to draw near. It's up to you. And if you're going to get close to him, you have to appreciate him for who he is. You need to be in awe and live in wonder of him. And he is worthy of it because he does wondrous things. You see, what I'm afraid of is that he does so much in our lives that we don't even notice. And I'm afraid we take his wondrous works for granted. And we go through life in the presence of wonder, and we don't even know it. And we don't recognize it. And we see great miracles happening around us, and we don't recognize them as miracles, or or that God is doing a wondrous work. So let me try to illustrate that for you. In 1997, Reeve Lindbergh, so, so daughter of the famous aviator Charles Lindbergh, she was invited to give the annual Lindbergh address at the Smithsonian Institute's Air and Space Museum because it was the 70th anniversary of, of her father's historic solo flight across the Atlantic. So this is a true story. She was, she was uh, asked to give the, the speech at the 70th anniversary. And on the day of the speech, she was invited by museum officials to come early before the facility opened so she could have a close-up look of the spirit of St. Louis. That was the plane her father flew on that trip. And so they have it at the Smithsonian Institute. And so the mor- that morning before her speech, um, her and her young son, uh, Reeve, they, they, or Reeve and her young son, Ben, arrive, and, and they were able to go up and see the plane. And so they put him in like a cherry picker or a, you know, a lift crane and carried him up to the point of the cockpit of the plane was it was at eye level and they could see in and they could touch the plane and, and she was able to you know run her fingers across the door handle that her father had used to enter the plane and, and so seeing this plane that, that her father had, had so bravely flown across the Atlantic on it was an emotional experience for her to the point that she became overcome with emotion and and she began to cry and she turned to her young son and just said you know Ben isn't this amazing and he replied very enthusiastically and said, yeah, man, mom, this is amazing. I've never been in a cherry picker before. <laughs> you see, I, I think Ben, young Ben, missed it a little bit. But the real question is, how many times do we miss it? God is all around us, and we don't see him. But then the other side of that coin is we miss opportunities to see wonder just because we don't join in on the mission. So, I mean, there's all sorts of examples in the Bible, but just think for a second. I won't take time to turn there, but think, you know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. And I'm sure you know, know the story, but Nebuchadnezzar had a golden image made of himself, and every time the music played, you know, everybody was to bow down to the golden image. And Daniel's boys refused to do that, because they would only worship the true God, and and, and then even after, so they get called in, they get brought in before Nebuchadnezzar and because and, they, they weren't doing it, and they get caught. And so Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second opportunity to bow down. It, here's what I want you to think about for just a second. What would have happened if they would have bowed down? If they would have done it and said, eh, I kind of don't want to die today, so I'm going to bow down. Uh, you know, God's providence has still been at work. God, God would have forgiven them. I mean, you know, David goes after his sin with Bathsheba. We have Psalm 51 and, and with that broken spirit, contrite heart. You know, if, if they would have come, they could have bowed down and they could have come to God and said, God, you know what, we screwed up. I'm really sorry. And they would have went on. And they might have even went on in the mission doing some great things for God. But look at what they would have missed. They would have missed being saved from the fire and spending the night with the Son of God. They would have missed the greatest miracle of their life. And the question for you and for me is what wondrous things from God do we miss? All because we bow to another God. Listen, God is worthy of our wonder. So don't miss it. Don't miss it by taking it for granted. Acknowledge him and praise him for it. But also don't miss it because you won't get involved in the mission. So in making a case for God, a case for why you should give your life to God and go all in on the mission, David has shown us that God is worthy of your worship. God is worthy of of your wonder. And then last, God is worthy of your whole life. That last statement sums it all up and lets us us know that God is worthy of everything we can give him. He is worthy of your whole life because he is God alone. His mission is the only thing in life worth doing because there is none like him. This is even where God started with the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. In verses 2 and 3, God said, For I am the Lord thy God which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And now what this means in the context of Exodus 20 is that God shouldn't even have to compete for you. He will, and he does, but nothing should go before him. You should have no other gods before me. And that word before does not mean ahead. He is not saying that thou shalt not have any other gods ahead of me, like they're one and I'm two what before means in that verse is in my presence. So God is saying, thou shalt have no other gods near me. Thou shall have no other gods in my present. You see, God shouldn't just be first place in your life. He should be the only place. There should be no other places. And hear me, because I'm not saying you shouldn't view other areas of your life as important. Of course you should. Your family, your job, this church, you name it, should all be very, very important to you and And you can even order and place them if you want. I don't care. What I'm talking about is there shouldn't be any other places with respect to who is your God. You shouldn't have multiple gods, even if you've labeled God first place. No. He is God alone. There should be no others. And that is a position he wants to hold in your life, and he deserves it. He is worthy of it. He is even jealous for it. And for God, jealousy is not just an emotion, it is a name. Exodus 34, 14 says, For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And I know what you're thinking. That's a little weird. God would be What's God got to be jealous of? I mean, isn't that kind of petty? I mean, he's God. And we think of it in those terms sometimes in the negative. But it is a not a negative thing if jealousy is properly placed. You see, God is not jealous because he is insecure or petty. He is jealous because he loves you. In the same way, I would be jealous for Jennifer, my wife, if another man approached her in in an inappropriate way. I would be jealous over her, and that other man would know it because I love her. And listen, if you would not be jealous over your spouse in certain situations, then you need to look at your love. You shouldn't be insecure But there are times that jealousy is an appropriate emotion. Of course, it can be taken, like anything, it can be taken too far, and that's our problem. We always take it too far, but God doesn't. And many times, I mean, biblical jealousy is okay. In fact, the Hebrew word translated jealous in Exodus 34 and in other places in your Bible is the same word translated as zealous in other parts of your Bible. So we, you know, tend to view jealous in negative terms. And zealous in positive terms. No. Biblical jealousy is zealousness. It is passion based on love. And the jealousy of God is demonstrated not just in the offense. Taken at our idolatry. Our worship of other gods. But also in the pursuit of our hearts. And the great thing about our God is that even even if you have another God. Even if you have given your worship to something else. He's still going to chase after you. He loves you more than any other God, and he wants you to know it. And if someone ever asks you, what's so special about Christianity? What sets it apart from Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or anything else? That is your answer. Nowhere else do we find a God in pursuit of people. It started in the Garden of Eden. It continued through the person of Jesus Christ, and it continues today through the work of the Holy Spirit. He loves us. The entire story, the entire Bible, it's a love story. And it's not just written to us, but it certainly includes us. And the Old Testament is a story of foolish, self-destructive rebellion of God's people. Does that sound familiar? He offers a special relationship, but time and time again, his people turned away from him, choosing one idol after another. By the end of the Old Testament, his people had veered so far off course that God seemed silent. He was silent for a while. There were no more prophets, no more deliverance, no more deliverance from enemies. It seemed like God had abandoned his people and accepted the fact that he was not their choice. But that wasn't the case. Because in the deepest and most incredible expression of his love, He sent his own own son to die for the sins of the world, to die for you and me. What kind of pursuer is that? What kind of love is that? Just look at what he has done throughout history because of his jealousy for his people. Doesn't that make you want to love him back? Doesn't that make you want to love him more? Don't you feel that love? And want to reciprocate, what is more important than giving your life to Him, than being part of the mission? Quit giving to other people and to other things the love and worship that belongs to God alone. He is God alone. So view Him that way and then worship Him in that way. Because He is worthy of your worship, He is worthy of your wonder. And he is worthy of your whole life. So just give him what he deserves. You know, we started tonight with the thesis, you will, humble, you will be a humble servant with the right mind only if you fully understand the worthiness of God. And he's worthy. And I know that I wasn't able to describe it to you tonight nearly as well as he deserves, but I hope he showed it to you. I hope he showed you how worthy he is for you to join the mission. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you.